Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. Jim Douglas uh, with you today. We had a great couple of discussions during the first hour about issues facing state government, uh, public safety and housing in particular, uh, some real challenges, uh, seemingly intractable. We wish our uh, governor and legislators well as they wrestle with them uh, in the balance of the legislative session. We're going to shift gears uh, now and talk with Matt Denhart, president of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. As I've uh, told uh, our audiences in the past, I have the privilege of serving on the board of that uh, great organization to commemorate and uh, promote the legacy of our 30th president, our local boy made good, uh, the gentleman born uh, in the tiny hamlet of Plymouth Notch, who went on to become the leader of the free world. And last year was the centennial of his uh, first presidential inauguration, so we had a lot of activities, but we're going to have some more, and that's what we're here to discuss with uh, with Matt. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for being here. Delighted. Well, let's uh, give a quick uh, summary of the centennial year, Matt, uh, uh, 2023, 100 years after the uh, presidential inauguration, a lot of activities, uh, initiatives. Um, uh, give us a rundown. Yeah, a lot happened, a big success. We're thankful uh, to you, Governor, for, for the roles that you played, which were numerous, and to uh, everyone in the listening audience, many of whom may have come and visited the Coolidge Historic Site in Plymouth Notch last year. I would say the the, the apex of, of all the celebrations was right on the 100th anniversary to the 2nd um, on, on early morning of August 3rd. Of 2023, uh, at 2:47 in the morning, a group of a few hundred gathered outside the Coolidge Homestead for a reenactment of the scene, which had happened, of course, 100 years earlier, when President Coolidge, who was vice president, was visiting his father. Uh, president Harding died somewhat unexpectedly, and uh, in those days, with more uh, primitive communication systems, they couldn't send him a text message, or he didn't see the news by tweet. Rather, a messenger brought a telegram and drove it all the way to the Coolidge house in the middle of the night, woke up uh, the vice president's father, who, who hurried up the stairs, knocked on the vice president's bedroom door and let him know he was president. Of course, he took the oath of office uh, right there in the family sitting room in Plymouth. It's isolated today. It was even more isolated back then. And the transfer of power, as you said, to become the leader of the free world happened right in Vermont. While everyone slept, um, very kind of classic Coolidge, no uh, no unnecessary ceremony, uh, but but a, a deep reverence for the importance of the work that was before him and the importance for the office that he was holding. Um, and so we're, we're grateful for all those who came out, and especially to you, Governor. Uh, you made a very fine Colonel John Coolidge, the father of the president. Thank you for your reenactments. I'm not sure I've recovered from my sleep deprivation, but it was a real privilege to be there and <laughs> hope it's another century before I have to do it again. But but thanks for the opportunity. But in addition to the events of August last year, uh, there were other activities, right? Absolutely. We had uh, right about this time last year, about, about a year ago, a big conference, a national convening uh, at the Library of Congress who co-hosted uh, a, a big event that celebrated Coolidge. Coolidge and the American Project was the name of that conference. It was taped 
by C-SPAN, uh, and many folks have, have weren't able to make it to Washington, but but wrote to us or called to say they saw it on C-SPAN and enjoyed it quite a bit. It was two full days of uh, speakers uh, talking about the legacy of Coolidge, uh, re-examining it a century later. Uh, really a, a, a terrific event, and again, folks can find that video with C-SPAN or on a, a website that we created to help document all these activities, uh, Coolidge2023.org. All the proceedings are there. We had not only many scholars and, and, and various policy leaders, um, including uh, Senator Peter Welch from, from Vermont, who, who spoke, um, but also we were joined by many students. About 100 students came uh, who are alumni of Coolidge Foundation programs, either those who have won our scholarship or applied to our scholarship or participated in our debate programs around the country, uh, came in, many of them from out of town, to be with us for this multi-day conference. And another really neat aspect of it was we had the national debut of a new documentary film on Coolidge, really the first of its kind. There have been sort of shorter video projects about Coolidge, but this was the first one to be feature length, uh, an hour, uh, really telling Coolidge's story from his birth there in Plymouth to his uh, time as uh, leader in, in Massachusetts and eventually governor and vice president, of course, his surprise inauguration and then his many achievements as president. So that film debuted at the library and uh, had a had a wonderful reception. And then uh, we held many events throughout the year, screenings um, around the country, and 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 a, a especially great one in Woodstock, Vermont, um, over the summer, so that that more folks are seeing that film and and people can find that as well online. It's now available through PBS um, nationwide. So so check. Check your PBS.org uh, uh, for, for, for your viewing area, and you should be able to find it. That film is called uh, Coolidge, Rediscovering an American President. And lots of uh, information, uh, videos, um, all kinds of uh, important historical information on the Coolidge Foolish website, right, which is uh, CoolidgeFoundation.org? That's right. Yeah, Coolidge uh, is the last president not to have what we kind of consider the modern Presidential Library, uh, when he was, uh, you know, finished in office in March of 1929, there was no, uh, you know, there was no kind of institutional framework uh, for what you do with your materials. So his his papers went to a number of different archives, um, and that's that's how it is today. Quite a few of them are at the Forbes Library in Northampton, and many with the Library of Congress, many with the Vermont Historical Society, uh, uh, yet more with the Vermont Division for Historic Preservation. And the Coolidge Foundation itself has its own uh, somewhat modest uh, co- collection of Coolidge papers and, and, and items. Um, but, you know, a number of years ago, it occurred to us that, uh, you know, the best way to do research uh, these days, of course, is, is online. And given that Coolidge's papers are, are somewhat scattered and hard to find, that it would be a, a really worthwhile effort to uh, try to digitize as much of this as possible and put it in one central place so that the folks who want to learn more about Coolidge, and especially those who want to read his own words, uh, either from his speeches or his press conferences or his proclamations or whatever it might be, uh, can, can easily find those. So folks go to CoolidgeFoundation.org. You can, you'll find in the, in the drop-down menu a link to our virtual library. We have just about every speech of Coolidge's up there, uh, his more than 500 press conferences. He's of course, known as Silent Cal, and he was not one for kind of idle chit-chat, um, but uh, but he did uh, meet with the press very frequently, more than twice a week on average, a very high rate uh, for, for presidents. And you can find those trans- 
uh, pardon me, the, the transcripts of all of those are available on the virtual library, along with many other uh, resources for, for folks who want to learn more and, and dig deeper into Coolidge. We're chatting with Matt Denhard, president of the Coolidge Foundation. And one example of that, Matt, is uh, that I came across recently was uh, uh, Governor Coolidge's veto message when he uh, rejected pay raises for legislators in 1919 in Massachusetts. And I sent that on to Governor Scott's office because he's facing that same, same challenge here in Vermont. So uh, a lot of resources on the Coolidge Foundation website. Uh, and uh, what also I found uh, particularly interesting is uh, uh, some audio recordings uh, or and video recordings of the president. Um, he had uh, not exactly... Uh, uh, telegenic uh, personality, uh, at least by 21st century standards, a very uh, nasal twang uh, that might uh, might not fly today, but it certainly was uh, was just what America wanted, and uh, most people hadn't heard their president uh, uh, speak, so it, it really resonated with them back in the 1920s. That's right. Yeah, the radio was the, the cutting edge technology of the day, and. Uh, Coolidge, I guess he wasn't the first president to be heard on radio. That, that, that honor, I think, or that, that award goes to President Harding, but he was the first to have one of his addresses carried nationally on, on radio. And he really was a master, um, of making use of that technology, making sure that he could get his message out to Americans in a broad way. Um, of course, today, the new technologies are, are, are Twitter and, and other things, but for Coolidge, he, um, Although he was, you know, he came from a from a rural place, he, he knew how to make use of technology to his uh, advantage and to the benefit of Americans. And with that twangy voice, uh, they said that his voice cut through the cut through the airwaves like a wire through cheese or something. So <laughs> I guess uh, that 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 twang worked well on radio. Well, if he lived just a couple of years longer, he could have been on WDEV, but he uh, unfortunately left us in uh, in 1930. A little later on, we're going to play a new song that uh, mentions uh, President Coolidge. It's uh, kind of interesting. But just wrapping up the thoughts on last year's uh, centennial, um, we also re- uh, reissued uh, or republished a book. That's right. Have Faith in Massachusetts, which is the title of uh, maybe Coolidge's uh, most well-known speech. His speeches, by and large, are, are you know across the board are really terrific. Um, but Have Faith in Massachusetts is a speech he gave when he became president of the Massachusetts State Senate, and there's a volume of his speeches, the first volume of his speeches by that same title, Have Faith in Massachusetts. And Governor, thank you for writing the foreword. Uh, It's out, and folks can find it on Amazon, uh, on the Coolidge Foundation website for purchase, and uh, probably on other online booksellers as well. And we hope people uh, take the time uh, to, to get to know those speeches. That that volume is mostly relates to his um, early his early years in, in state politics by and large. Um, his his presidential speeches came later, of course. Yeah, and uh, his autobiography is also available for uh, purchase through the Coolidge Foundation website that we commend uh, uh, to our listeners too. Uh, the president's own words and reflections uh, very interesting indeed. Uh, Matt Denhart, president of the Coolidge Foundation, uh, is our guest. You talked about the um, the uh, Library of Congress conference that was held about a year ago. Well, um, one good turn deserves another, so we've got another one coming up. That's right. Uh, America in Debt. This will be our annual conference this year. It will take place March 7th at the Library of Congress. 
and again, another terrific lineup of speakers. If you think about, uh, you know, the issues that Coolidge himself cared most about, he writes in that autobiography that anything related to uh, the economy and to sort of government finances were were peculiar uh, or particular, I should say, particular interest to him. And the debt was uh, especially important. I think those thrifty New England uh, you know, values of his uh, certainly uh, carried through into how he thought that the federal purse ought to be uh, managed. And one of the great accomplishments uh, of his was that he managed to reduce the debt considerably. He balanced the budget every year. He's the last president to have balanced the budget every year of his presidency. And, uh, you know, often today, we, we it seems we don't even try to do that. Uh, the debt just grows and grows, or the deficits widen and widen, and the debt grows larger. Uh, so we're going to have a conference that looks back at history. Of course, debt uh, is nothing new. We've had it uh, throughout, throughout you know, the history of our country. In fact, we had large debt right after the, the Revolutionary War. And uh, First Treasury Secretary uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton course, had a plan uh, for managing the debt and thought that if the, the uh, U.S. government was, was good on its debt and, and uh, it would acquire some creditworthiness, which would serve it well. And that indeed is what happened uh, you know, in, in the early years of our republic. And uh, really for probably more than a century uh, plus, uh, you know, we took on debt during times of crisis, then worked hard to pay that down and keep it to a manageable level. In recent times, We've strayed from that, and that's something that probably would alarm Coolidge uh, and is a major challenge for our country. So all this will be considered by scholars, policymakers of both parties um, at this big conference that we're planning for March 7th down in Washington at the Library of Congress. If anyone's listening uh, and, and will be in the area, please do let us know. We have a, a few seats still available. It's, uh, looks it's shaping up to be a popular event. Um, but we'd love to include you. It'll be filmed as well, and the proceedings will be made available um, uh, here here before too long. Matt, um, uh, this is a little uh, off our usual uh, beat, but um, um, you were able to facilitate the uh, recording of a song uh, that um, mentions President Coolidge. And the, the context of this is that uh, a, a gentleman uh, from Danville named Dwight Lakey, uh, who has some other uh, recordings out, by the way, um, uh, wrote a song entitled Darn Tough Vermont in response to the serious uh, flooding episodes that we've had over the past year. And um, it's uh, designed as sort of a fundraiser, uh, although on a voluntary basis. People can download it and are encouraged to send a contribution to the uh, flood relief effort. But since there's a Coolidge connection, he was president during the uh, devastating flood of 1927, um, uh, we thought we'd better play it for our listening audience. So uh, you might hear a recognizable voice in here, too. So let's, uh, let's roll it. It's called Darn Tough Vermont. It's darn tough living in Vermont Among these soft green hills Cause you can't bank scenic income And it doesn't pay the bills At least the state can't tax it yet Someday they'll probably try But the beauty makes life sweeter As we work hard to get by You're darn tough Vermont You mostly do what you want and what you want is mostly fair and true. 
You often do hard days labor. You often do things for your neighbor. Things you'd like your neighbor to do for you. It's darn tough following a V-trans plow, kicking up sand and rocks. But it's cozy sitting by a fire, warming toes in your darn tough socks. It's darn tough living by a mountain stream when high water comes along. But your neighbors come and lend a hand and prove they're Vermont strong. You're darn tough Vermont. You mostly do what you want. And what you want is mostly fair and true. You often do hard days of labor. You often do things for your neighbor. Things you'd like your neighbor to do for you. Silent Cal spoke proudly of his brave little state. He bragged about Vermonters and the traits that make them great. He told of their persistence and resolve when hope was gone. When faced with difficulties, Calvin Coolidge said, Press on. You're darn tough Vermont. You mostly do what you want. And what you want is mostly fair and true. You often do hard days of labor. You often do things for your neighbor. Things you'd like your neighbor to do for you. You're darn tough Vermont. You mostly do what you want. And what you want is mostly fair and true. You often do hard days of labor. You often do things for your neighbor. Things you'd like your neighbor to do for you. Things you'd like your neighbor. Do kind things for your neighbor. Things you'd like your neighbor to do for you. Well, a little uh, musical entertainment during our conversation here, Matt. Uh, um, but an uh, interesting uh, um, uh, historical note because of the flood of 1927 and the more recent flooding that we've experienced. And, and uh, thanks to Dwight Lakey and uh, Roadside Studio in Danville for making that uh, available. Um, Matt, we've got a call. Uh, let's go to Mark from Moncton on the line. Mark, you're, you're on the air with Matt Denhart. Yeah, I have a question. Did Calvin Coolidge play any musical instruments following that song? <laughs> Matt? Uh, Coolidge did not play any musical instruments, um, but, uh, you know, he did like uh, pets a lot. He also was not real good at sports. That's another question people often ask. He said of his time at Amherst College um, uh, that he held the stakes, <laughs> but he, he didn't play. Uh, he did not play any musical instruments. But Grace Coolidge did. Uh, she was a wonderful pianist, and uh, in fact, one of her pianos from the White House is actually at uh, the Coolidge Historic Site in the Museum and Education Center, which is uh, overseen by our colleagues with the Vermont Department for Historic Preservation and folks uh, can, can come in and, and see it there. Um, and also in the uh, historic church in Plymouth Notch, there's an old SD organ, uh, which some may, may recognize. And, uh, and, uh, and so music was certainly part of the Coolidge's life, but uh, probably lucky for everyone, Grace Coolidge was the one who performed it. <laughs> and we hope she rather than he sang, if there was any singing too, but 
That's thanks, right. Thanks, Mark, for the call. Uh, and the historic site is open roughly from what early to mid-May to October uh, for those who uh, we hope will want to visit uh, when the season gets up and running. That's right. Um, Opens just before Memorial Day. Uh, Matt, we've only got a couple minutes left, but uh, we, we talked about the centennial events during the last year, especially the uh, the highlight, which was the reenactment of the Homestead inauguration on August 3rd. But um, we've got some other summer activities coming up this year, right? Absolutely. Uh, every summer we have a high school debate, the Coolidge Cup, as we call it, and uh, students compete throughout the year. In fact, competitions have been happening uh, last fall and, and already this winter uh, in cities around the country, as far as Idaho and Dallas and closer and New Haven and, and elsewhere. Uh, down in North Carolina uh, at tournaments where students can qualify. Uh, they're one of the top finishers for the Coolidge Cup, which is a national debate championship that culminates at the historic site in late June and, and early July um, where the students travel in and uh, compete. Uh, the final rounds are on the 4th of July, and there are uh, pretty significant scholarship prizes for the for the top students. Last summer, they actually uh, uh, debated whether or not Coolidge deserved to be ranked higher, uh, even even much higher. He in the latest C-SPAN poll, anyway, of presidents, he ranks 24th, and so uh, their debate resolution was does he deserve to be in the top 10? So the students learned all about Coolidge to debate that. About half the we were proud, proud to report that about half the the debates uh, ended uh, saying, "Well, no, no, he probably doesn't." About half in folks thinking, "Well, maybe he does deserve an upgrade." So a pretty uh, fair resolution we thought, and a great tournament. Um, we haven't yet set the the topic for this summer's tournament, um, but it's sure to be a lively one again with students coming from across the country. You mentioned too. Uh, on the Fourth of July, we have a big public celebration. That's Coolidge's birthday, the only president born on the Fourth of July, and so each year we celebrate that occasion. The National Guard brings a wreath that's sent from the White House and it's laid upon uh, President Coolidge's grave. We have a ceremony when we do that. Members of the Coolidge family join us. Uh, we typically read some selections from Coolidge's uh, speeches. And uh, really just have a, have a nice day. Usually there's a birthday cake available uh, for, for folks to enjoy. We read uh, the Declaration of Independence in the morning and really a, a wonderful day to, to come out. Um, so plenty will be going on this summer. And, and uh, we've only got a couple of seconds left, but how about August? And in August, uh, August 3rd, we'll reenact again. Uh, the, this will be the 101st anniversary of the Homestead inauguration. And then on August 17th, a Saturday, we will do a reenactment, another historic reenactment of a visit by Henry Ford, Harvey, Harvey Firestone, and Thomas Edison, which was 100 years ago. They made a, a, a trip to Plymouth Notch to visit President Coolidge in an election year. This year, I, maybe I'll close by saying this. This year is the 100th anniversary of Coolidge's uh, election in his own right of 1924. We have a new book just out uh, by that title, 1924, all about the election, and we'll be celebrating that this year, too. Well, Matt Denhart, president of the Coolidge Foundation, thanks so much for being with us once again. We'll be back after the news. Don't go away. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. Jim Douglas with you today. And just a quick uh, programming note, um, uh, high school basketball tonight on WDEV. 
the Northfield Savings Bank uh, basketball game presented by Jolly Convenience Stores uh, will feature the uh, tournament uh, Division Three semifinal between the Woodstock Wasps and the Randolph Galloping Ghost. It'll be hosted by the Galloping Ghost in Randolph, and it all starts at 645 right here on Radio Vermont. So high school basketball tonight. Um, we hope you'll tune in and support our high school athletes. Well, um, I'm honored to be joined this uh, this segment by Matt Dickinson, professor of political science at Middlebury College. Um, Matt, thanks for being on once again. Always a pleasure, Governor. Well, we had a discussion during the last half hour with uh, the president of the Coolidge Foundation, Matt Denhart. I didn't ask him about uh, something I guess I should ask you about. Uh, <clears throat> that is a new... Uh, ranking by political scientists about, well, you have to characterize it for us, but uh, the, what, the best presidents in history or or something like that? Yeah, it's an exercise that political scientists periodically go through. Um, the group of political scientists that study the presidency are asked to rank all presidents um, from Washington through Biden um, in some type of um, effort to determine who's the best and who's the worst and array everybody in between. And it's an interesting exercise, um, but it's also fraught with uncertainty about what do you rank them on? Um, how do you determine the impact of somebody who has served one month in office, William Henry Harrison, or somebody who's in the middle of his first term, uh, Joe Biden? So it's uh, it's a tricky exercise, but um, the most recent rankings uh, were the first ones that involved Joe Biden. So we were interested to see how these so-called experts uh, would rank him. And uh, about 150 political scientists weighed in on this, and Joe Biden came out 14th out of the 45 individual presidents. Uh, and what's interesting is his potential opponent, uh, Donald Trump, was rated last, and not by a small margin, the 45th. Worst president, I guess, uh, first worst president or 45th greatest uh, among all who have ever served. Well, that's interesting. And another one uh, that really surprised me on that list was uh, Barack Obama listed at number seven. Uh, that seemed uh, generous. Yeah. And that is also surprising because that's a jump of nine slots since the first time he was incorporated in a, a ranking back in 2015. So in eight years, he's jumped nine slots. Uh, has this record improved that much? Uh, apparently so, according to these experts. Of course, the other thing you have to keep in mind is um, there is some partisan influence here. The more liberal scholars rated Obama six. The more conservative uh, scholars had him much lower. Um, so these aren't these judgments are are not set in stone, and they can change over time. Uh, particularly his records. Over time, are reevaluated, standards change, and so on. And, and there's something perhaps at play here that we call recency bias, isn't there? I think there is. If you think about the rankings, um, Joe Biden 14th, Obama 7th, um, and presidents like Calvin Coolidge inexplicably are dropped down. Um, Coolidge dropped like nine slots. His record hasn't changed. Um, the evaluation of his presidency hasn't really changed. But I think scholars just don't know much about them. Um, 
And the other problem with recency bias is we're still making sense of events. You know, George W. Bush's rankings have a lot to do with the decision to invade Iraq. And is Iraq going to be a stable democracy in 20 years, or is it going to continually to be sort of riven by sectarian divisions? That affects our evaluation of Bush. Of course, uh, a lot of... uh our chief executives have more successful post-presidencies. We think of uh, Jimmy Carter in particular and, and even George W. I, I saw a recent report where his uh, favorability has increased from 34% when he left office to 60% now. So folks can uh, can shine even after the fact. I think Carter's a great example. I mean, he had one of the most successful post-presidencies um, of any president. Of course, it's been... Uh, it's still ongoing, uh, and his ranking is actually pretty high. I think he's thirteenth, um, uh, or I'll have to double check, but he's relatively high for somebody who served one term, was defeated at the ballot box, and uh, at a time when we had you know double-digit inflation and very high unemployment, um, and yet he seems to have benefited from uh, the more impressive post-presidential record. Well, of course, uh, um, this is all fake news because everybody knows Coolidge couldn't have possibly dropped by uh, uh, whatever number of points he did. And uh, uh, Matt Denhart told us that in the latest C-SPAN ranking, Coolidge is 24th, so he's in the top almost half. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we're chatting with Matt Dickinson, professor of political science at at Middlebury. Uh, Speaking of the presidency, I understand there's going to be an election this year, so I guess we should talk about that. Uh, are, are we going to see uh, a rerun of the two old guys? Well, that's, I think, the safest bet that Trump will win the Republican nomination and Biden the Democratic nomination. Uh, but there are uh, a potential um, obstacles to, in, that both have to overcome. And In some sense, they're unprecedented. Obviously, Donald Trump is facing legal cases. Uh, The first one to go to trial will be the hush money payments, uh, which the judge has scheduled to be in trial in March. Well, that's right during the primary season, and he's going to be in a a courtroom. And who knows what happens if he gets convicted. Um, Likely, it's not going to strengthen his nomination hopes. Um, And Joe Biden uh, there's always been these ongoing questions about his age. He's 81. Uh, and the recently released special prosecutor's report about his handling of classified documents did him no favors by suggesting uh, the handling was perhaps potentially illegal, but it wouldn't be worth prosecuting him because he would come across as a genial old man who couldn't remember what he did. Uh, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement of re-electing an 81-year-old president. So there are potential roadblocks that both must face before they are confirmed as the nominees. I hear a lot of people um, say in uh, exasperation, I guess, this is a country of 330 million people, and this is the best we can do. It comes down to this. Um, is there something wrong with our nominating process? Um, I don't know. Well, there were, I mean, Biden is facing opposition from Dean Phillips, uh, the congressman from Minnesota, and, of course, Marianne Williamson, but it doesn't seem to be particularly potent. Uh, obviously, Robert Kennedy Jr. 
sought the Democratic nomination, but I think it's just difficult to pull an incumbent president um, to, to run against him within your own party. Most people just don't want to do that for fear of perhaps weakening him. And, of course, Donald Trump, in some sense, is the incumbent president among Republicans. So I don't know if the system's so flawed as that it's just unprecedented to have two individuals who uh, have such stature um, as your, your obvious frontrunners here. We're chatting with Matt Dickinson from uh, Middlebury about the upcoming presidential election. So at this point, um, um, a lot of the polls suggest Trump has an edge. Does that make sense to you? It does. I mean, the unusual thing here is that he, in essence, is an incumbent president himself, so he's well-known. So we ought to take, pay attention, I think, more so than we normally would to polls predicting the outcome of an election in November, um, usually at this time, they're not very predictive. We really have to wait until the presidential uh, political conventions, the nominating conventions, before most people start paying attention. I think they're probably a little more predictive this time, but I wouldn't go to the bank here. I think the worry, if you're a Biden supporter, is that no incumbent president has had approval ratings this low, this late in the contest. Um, and usually the incumbent presidency's approval ratings begin to rise now. Um, and this may yet happen with Biden as the economy continues to get better and the perception of that filters into the voters and they begin paying attention. Um, so I don't want to dismiss the polls now, um, but I would, I would take them with a grain of salt, uh, keeping in mind, however, that this is somewhat unprecedented with having two former presidents or one current and former president running. And you mentioned the economy. Uh, there's an old saying that uh, people generally vote their pocketbook. Is that, is that what you expect would, would happen this year? Or are there other issues that play into uh, voters' decisions? Well, I think typically the economy is the most important factor. And polls, um, even now, asking people what is the most important factor heading the election it is the economy, but the two factors that I think complicate things is one is our views of the economy are increasingly filtered through our partisan affiliation. Republicans just think the economy is doing worse than Democrats do. Um, and second, that the age factor is potentially undercutting the importance of the economy more than we would see in past presidential elections. Um, you know, the fact that you have an 81-year-old who visibly appears older, uh, it may give people pause uh, in terms of saying, well, yes, the economy is trending the right way and Biden should get some credit, but still, he's too old to be president. And polls suggest over 80% of Americans, over 70% of Democrats, really think Biden is too old uh, to serve a, sec a full second term. Now, whether that will translate into a vote against him uh, remains to be seen. But I think the economy is still the number one factor. And Matt, I've heard you uh, talk about the uh, changing uh, allegiances of different segments of the voting population. For example, um, a generation ago, we talked about the uh, Republican country club set. All the uh, wealthier, uh, well-educated people were Republicans, and that's shifted, hasn't it? It has. That, I think, is the most interesting aspect of this election, 
because it's taking place of the long-term realignment in the coalitions that support Republicans and Democrats. And as you quite correctly point out, that country club Republican is being replaced with sort of a um, a well-educated, um, relatively affluent Democratic voter, typically white, um, that has become the strongest base of support for Democratic candidates up and down the tickets. Whereas the Republicans, and Donald Trump um, certainly illustrated this, are drawing increasingly from lower income, lower educated voters, and not just whites, by the way. The shift in support among lower educated um, Hispanics and to a lesser extent African Americans from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party is quite significant, um, even in just the period since Donald Trump was elected in 2016, runs kind of counter to conventional media uh, wisdom, which suggests, you know, Trump's support is largely white nationalist, but it's not. Uh, He's drawing a lot of um, votes from Hispanics and African-Americans at the lower income levels. Any any sense of why that might be true, why that shift is occurring? Well, one factor, I think, is the issues that the Democrats have been running on are increasingly issues associated with racial identity, um, cultural issues like abortion. Um, These are issues that, if you are affluent, they matter to you. Um, School curriculum, um, gender identity, these matter a lot to you. But if you're somebody who's struggling to meet the rent or, um, or pay food bills, those issues are less important to you. And Republican candidates in recent years have just done a better job at focusing on those issues. The Donald Trump running on bringing back manufacturing jobs, eliminating favorable trade, um, tightening the borders, which has an economic dimension. So I think the parties. Uh, most visible candidates are focusing on different sets of issues. The Democrats, the November election is all about democracy, um, abortion rights. Um, For Republicans, it's about immigration and jobs. Um, And that, I think, has contributed to this shifting coalitions. Well, fascinating uh, to be sure. And Matt, I wanted to uh, shift gears just a little to talk about the congressional elections. Um, we've uh, we've had quite a uh, run here in recent years of divided government, and now, of course, there's a very narrow majority for the Democrats in the U.S. Senate and a very narrow majority for the Republicans in the U.S. House. A Democrat holds the presidency. But uh, that uh, any of the three of those <laughs> could change the, this uh, coming year. So w- what do you think about the congressional landscape uh, for 24? Well, one of the developments um, that you know quite well is the congressional elections are now increasingly nationalized. Uh, Parties run as teams, um, and they're linked to the top of the ticket more than they ever were. Having said that, and this is particularly true for the Senate, candidate quality still matters. We saw the Republicans snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, uh, in the 2022 midterm, in part because they ran uh, some dubious candidates for some Senate races in Pennsylvania and Georgia and Arizona. So 
keeping that in mind, uh, the lay of the land suggests the Republicans are poised to regain a majority in the Senate, I think, in 2024. There's just more Democrats defending um, these battleground seats, and, and they look vulnerable. Uh, on the other hand, and George Santos' <laughs> replacement election may be a harbinger of this, Democrats don't need to pick up very many seats to regain a majority in the House. And again, depending on the national ticket and overall trends, I would not be surprised to see that happen. So it's early. We'll have to see how the tides shift. Um, but I would right now I'm leaning towards thinking we are going to have divided government again for at least another two years. But with the Congress current majorities being flipped so that the Senate will be uh, majority Republican and the House majority Democrat. Now, the Republicans will not have enough seats in the Senate to overcome uh, Democratic filibusters, but you control the Senate, you control judicial nominations, you control replacements to the Supreme Court, depending again who the president is. So that's a, a potentially big shift, if I'm right. Well, I think that makes sense, uh, frankly. Um, um, you, you used the, uh, the, a term that uh, Mitch McConnell did a couple of years ago, candidate quality. Uh, uh, nice uh, charitable way to, <clears throat> to put it um, in some cases. But uh, in a number of cycles um, in the last decade or so, the Republicans have have not recruited the strongest Senate nominees. But uh, for this cycle, maybe they've learned from that experience. Um, um, former Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland announced he's going to seek the Senate seat that he told me personally last year uh, he was not he was not going to seek. Um, in Montana, it looked like a bruising Republican primary might yield a weaker nominee, but uh, things seem to have settled down. Uh, I guess there have been uh, good recruitment uh, efforts in uh, Wisconsin uh, uh, specifically, and and of course West Virginia, where Senator Joe Manchin stepping down. Uh, would seem to offer a chance for a Republican pickup. So I, I think uh, what you've uh, described uh, is is a pretty likely scenario. But of course, you never know till the voters weigh in. Right, um, and you know there are states like New Jersey where the incumbent it's a blue state, but Bob Menendez is um, you know he's ethically challenged. Uh, been indicted on bribery charges. So there's some unknowns there that I think are going to put Democrats in a tough place to defend. And on the House side, um, uh, there have been a lot of uh, uh, reports um, um, about legislative uh, district lines being challenged in court, being redrawn, even now, a couple of years after the uh, redistricting exercise should have ended. Uh, there's still some shifting lines, and some of them may favor Democrats, right? Yeah, I mean, it's an, uh, in recent decades, and we saw this happen after the 2000 and the 2010, uh, the gerrymandering process has been repeated in some states, um, depending on if you can get a, a more favorable uh, drawing of lines by the state legislatures. Um, they, they'll go right ahead and do it. Um, Again, at the margins, when you have a closely contested control, every factor matters, certainly redrawing lines in ways. We saw this in upstate New York 
whether the difficulty of um, drawing new lines ended up having a court do one uh, a plan that probably was more favorable to Republicans than otherwise would have been in a blue state, gave them a couple of seats they might not have won. That matters now. They've got like a four-seat majority. So uh, that's a factor that's hard to predict how it's going to play out, but it is a factor. Got just a couple minutes, Matt, but let me ask you about another aspect of um, uh, elections that is obviously quite different from what it used to be, and that's uh, social media and artificial intelligence and deep faking, whatever that is, uh, all, all this stuff that uh, seems to be playing somewhat of a role. Uh, do you see that as a, as a key factor this year? Well, you know, it's the social media I would separate from the uh, increasingly sophisticated artificial intelligence that you now see generating false images of candidates and, and making them appear to be saying things. I mean, that is a worry, but I don't think it's a significant factor in terms of uh, influencing the outcome of races heading into 2024. Social media is a different story, though. I think one of the difficulties we have is the technology just seems to be changing. My students are on a platforms that I didn't even hear of 10 years ago, TikTok and so on. And so we're, we're not fully, um, I think, un, uh, understanding the impact on politics. But one thing you do worry about is sort of misinformation and um, silos, ideological silos, and, and how much voters are hearing like-minded uh, stories um, from fellow partisans. Um, so it is a factor. Uh, certainly, I think it contributes to the polarization of discourse because the loudest voices are the ones that dominate social media. Um, and the worry here is not so much it favors one party or the other as it favors candidates who are more extreme in their views um, than perhaps more moderate and representative candidates. And I think that's the biggest worry about social media. Well, uh, to be determined and to be continued, uh, Matt Dickinson, Professor of Political Science at Middlebury, thanks so much for joining us once again. Thank you. Well, that's uh, our show for today. Stay tuned for Common Sense Radio, and uh, somewhere along the way, I'm sure we'll see you again. Take care.